Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. this year is. It's kind of a happy new year, hopefully. We really want it to be, right? I feel like this year we're, we're kind of um, we're kind of like dipping our toes into 2022 a little bit, like, and I think it's going to be okay, because you remember last year this time we got real excited? We had all sorts of hopes, right? We thought that 2021 was going to be different. We got a few days into it and we thought, oh boy, oh boy, we thought 2020 was bad. And, uh, and, and here we are, we're ready. But I, I have a feeling we're at a place where we're a little bit more hesitant to hope. And I kind of want to suggest that may not be the worst thing for us. Because our hope was based on some external things, wasn't it? Our hope was based on some things, you know... <laughs> Some like, you know, maybe a vaccine working or like a pandemic stopping. And, and all those external things have um, maybe even gotten worse. And yet, I want to suggest that we can still have hope today and we need to have hope today. But we just got to place our hope in something else. And, uh, and so that's what we get to talk about today. Because um, I, I have this feeling that a lot of, a lot of people, I won't say us, but even us at times, we place our hope in, in the externals, like the, you know, uh, the stuff that we have, the job that we have, the, the, the external things going on in our lives. And we think that if we just have those things right, then we're going to live a good life. And yet, yet, when it doesn't work, we find ourselves struggling. And so I, I, I want to really kind of pound in something you already know. And the good life is found nowhere else other than Jesus. And we're going to see, as we get, we're going to talk today and next week about this book. In a, in a short little series we're calling The Good Book. And we're going to talk about how this book, The Good Book, today, is, is, we're going to talk about how it's intrinsically tied to the good life. That... Knowing and following what this book is all about is the way that we live the good life. So uh, we're going to talk about the, the most influential book of all time. This is clearly the most influential book of all time. I mean, I mean the numbers are ridiculous on that, by the way. Um, they, they don't even put it on the New York Times bestseller. Um, and I can't find a good reason why. Um, but, you know, a, a good year, like last year, like 2020, um, Obama's book was, had two and a half million copies sold. That was, a, that was a good year for the, the highest-selling um, book on the New York Times bestsellers list, right? You realize that every year, the Gideons, they give away 70 million of these, okay? Just the Gideons, right? I mean, there's, there's a lot more of these books. Estimated that there are more than, than between 5 and 6 billion of these, like, around. Still not enough. Right? There's still more than those, that, there's seven, or seven and a half billion people on the earth, so we still need more of them. This is by far the most influential book, but today I want, I want to tell you how this needs to be influential in our lives. Not just a good book out there. 
And so today we're going to be a little bit, it's going to be a little apologetic, a little theological. If you like it, great. If you, if you don't, you can send your emails to rpaulson at, no, <laughs> just kidding, I'm just kidding. No, um, we're going to start by just diving into what this is, okay? So um, first of all, I, I just have to point out that it's, it's actually not a book, okay? We call it the good book, but it's, it's really not a, a book. In fact, um, the word Bible comes from a Greek word that is the tabiblia, which is actually a plural word meaning the books. Plural. Even in the word Bible, it is implying that there are books. And so we call it Bible in a sense for shorthand because saying this seems too long because we could call it an ancient collection of 66 sacred texts that include narrative, poetry, prayers, letters, songs, sermons, parables, history, prophecy, wisdom, philosophy, theology, and gospel written by more than 40 authors over the span of 1,500 years in three different languages and from three different continents that are all connected by a common storyline and a shared hope. <gasps> but that's a bit of a mouthful. So we call it a Bible. But this is really what it is. It's a lot more than a book. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's influential because it does something in people's lives. And we're going to see a little bit about what that is. But would you be surprised if I told you that there were people who don't believe that this is the words of God? Would, I, would it surprise you if, if I told you that today there are people out there who will try to tell you that this is just a bunch of myths? Of old wives' tales. I don't think it would surprise you at all, actually. In fact, I know it wouldn't because you've heard, you've heard the critiques. They're all over the place. You might even, you might even be thinking to yourself, yeah, I, I wish we lived in a day and age when people just respected this book. Well, I hate to tell you that there's never really been an age where everybody's just respected this book. I wish there was. There was, in fact, people have been asking hard questions about this book ever since day one. And I want to take you to a passage today that is addressing one of those issues. Because one of the things I, I love about the Bible, there's lots of things I love, of course, but one of the things is that the Bible actually deals with most of the criticisms itself. And so you don't have to necessarily go outside to, to deal with it. Because this is a passage that it that does. In fact, Peter is addressing this in 2 Peter 1. And we're going to start in verse 16. So if you have a Bible, you can join me there. Um, because there's, you know, there's 5 billion of them out there. So hopefully you have one. The average, average Christian has nine of them. <laughs> I think I have 45 or something. I don't know. But um, 2 Peter 1. It says this. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. Okay. Notice that this is what, this is, was the complaint, apparently, that Peter is dealing with. There were people who were saying that, nah, this Bible stuff, it's just a bunch of myth. They were saying that way back then. And Peter's going to give us some answers about it. He says, we weren't following these cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's going to talk about his majesty in just a minute here. But I believe that what follows, and what, what Peter is doing here is giving us some, some really strong arguments as to why we can trust this book. 
So I want to ask the question, if, this, if we're calling this the good book, I want to ask the question, what's good? What's so good about the good book? What's so good about this? Okay, and I, I want to give you five reasons. Okay, Now, there's lots of reasons. There's lots more than this. Um, these are five that I felt like I had time for. And you can tell me at the end if I needed a few more minutes, because uh, I think I do. But um, this is... Uh, th- these are five reasons, and I, I hope that they're not only reasons that you can trust this book, but that you can fall deeper and deeper in love with this book, and especially with who this book points to, because that's point number one, is that it's a single story with a trajectory that points to Jesus. It is a single story with a trajectory that points to Jesus. Now, now knowing what the Bible is, is important for us so that we don't get caught up in thinking that it is something that it never claims to be. Okay, because actually a lot of objections to the Bible are objections that are claiming it to be something that it never claims to be, okay? Okay, you know, for instance, this is, you know, it's not just a, a book of wise sayings. Okay, there are a lot of wise sayings in there. It's not just good teaching. There's definitely good teaching in there, of course, right? That's not what, that's not what it is. It's not, even, it's not even just a pure history book. There's lots of history in it, but that's not what the book is about. The book, from beginning to end, is a single storyline that points in a trajectory towards Jesus. And, and I use that word trajectory because it, it, in the early pages, right, in the first, you know, more than half of it, the first two-thirds of it, in the, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, that, it doesn't mention the name Jesus even once. But it's on a trajectory pointing there. And what we see is, we see is the Messiah is promised. Right? We see promise throughout pointing to Jesus. And we see Jesus and we look back and we go, oh, it was a trajectory pointing to Jesus. And this is crucially important here. In fact, this is what, this is what Peter points out. Okay? Because they, they thought that this was just myth. In fact, a, a lot of people have assumed that Jesus, uh, they've said Jesus fits so well in like Old Testament prophecy that they had to make it up. They actually thought that the, uh, the Old Testament was written after the New Testament. This was one of the critiques like 200 years ago until they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. They found the Dead Sea Scrolls and that was, that was concrete proof that the Old Testament was written before the New Testament. But they said that because it looked like it was just too good to be true. And sure enough, this must have been what Peter is thinking about when he takes us to our next passage. Because he had mentioned his majesty, Jesus, he says in verse 17, For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, okay, a phrase for God. God said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, just in case you don't have a reference Bible that points you back exactly to what this is talking about, Peter here is talking about an account that happens in Matthew 17. And this is the story of the transfiguration. Okay, That Peter himself was eyewitnesses to this. He was taken, Jesus took Peter along with James and John up to a mountain. Okay, and in, you can read about this in Acts 17 where Jesus is, is transformed into his state of glory. Okay, they, they are in awe of it. They can't believe what's happening. And then two people appear by his side. 
It's Moses and Elijah. And in, in the story, in, in Matthew 17, um, Peter says, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents, one for you, one for the Moses, and one for Elijah. Here Peter thinks, ah, this is saying you're all three equal. This is the same. That's not what the Father says. It says, I love it, he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud says, this is my beloved son. It says, this is who I am well pleased with. That's the voice that comes out. The voice doesn't say, oh, they're all three the same. No, the voice says, this one, Jesus is the one. Now, Moses summed up, it was kind of the iconic person that sums up the, the law. Elijah was representing the prophets. When you talked about the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, you would often summarize it as the law and the prophets. And that meant the whole thing. And so what God is saying is, those are great, but the real thing is Jesus. Jesus is where it's really at. And those two support Jesus. But Jesus is my son whom I am well pleased. What God is saying is that Jesus is the main point. That this whole thing points to Jesus. This is what our, our statement of faith says. And you can find this online on our website. But, but our statement of faith about the Bible says this. That we affirm that the person and work of Jesus Christ is the central focus of the entire Bible. This is the main point of it. And I think this is what makes it so good. It's because it is about Jesus. It's one of the things that make it so good. The second one is the way that this book came together. And this is unique. This is unlike any other book. Okay? This book is a beautiful collaboration of the human and the divine. It's a collaboration of the human and the divine. We often... We often talk about this book as if it's a holy book. And, and let me be clear, it is a holy book. Um, but we often do that, especially because on mine, I don't know about yours, you can look at your cover, um, but mine right here, it says, Holy Bible. Just in case I forgot, this is the holy books, is what it's saying, right? And, and, and we should remember that. It, it is holy. But before we get to holy, I want to I talk a little bit about human. Because it's also very incredibly human. Clearly, you're going to learn about who God is in this, but you're also going to learn about who you are in this. And that's one of the things that has made this book so compelling, is that, yes, it points to God, but in the pages, we see ourselves become more alive. We see, like, we learn about who we are, who we're created to be. It is a beautiful thing. But I do want you to notice how human the book is. It has every human experience in these pages. It's got birth, life, sex, pain, depression, betrayal, murder, politics, fear, hope, love, hate, beauty, joy, pain, and death. It's got it all. It doesn't just tell us about the divine. It tells us about life. And the people who are represented in these pages are, are eerily similar to us, aren't they? In, in, the, in fact, the, the way that like, oh, they made mistakes too. They make the same mistakes that we do. They have the same needs that we do. 
one of the things I love is that it's not just a book full of, like, superhumans. Our heroes are people that we can relate to. That's a great thing. They have the same ups and downs as we are. One of the, one of the things that I, uh, one of the examples of, of uh, that humanizes this book so much, because it's our, the characters that are written in it and the authors themselves writing it. Um, but one of the examples is, is the Apostle Paul, who um, at times I can't relate to the Apostle Paul. At times he's just like, he seems like the superhuman. He's, man, he says words so beautifully. I, I wish I could say them the way he says them, right? He, just can, he can just say such powerful things. In fact, there's one of these that I love. He's, he's in, um, it's towards the end of his life. He says uh, earlier before this, he says that I'm being poured out as a drink offering and the time for my departure has come. He says this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He almost feels like a superhuman here, right? He's, he's done it. But then I love that just a few verses later, he says this. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with the carpus. Also the books and above all the parchments. I love it. He's this like, I, I fought the fight. I finished the race. And I get cold. And I need a coat. Right? And, and, I, and I can't even afford to buy a new coat. So would you bring me the one? Right? I mean, this is, he's so, he, he's human. And this is the crazy thing. We often will say things and we use the terminology. We'll say like, well, God said, and we'll quote the Bible. And, and, and you know, I always go, huh, well, unless they're saying God said that, it, it was actually like Paul. Who said that? At the same time, though, we allow it, don't we? Because we do believe that God said it. Because he said it to it in his word, in the Bible. Because what's going on here is something unique. It's something special. In its pages, you're going to find this awe-inspiring, soul-penetrating words. But you're also going to find the very words of God. And so Peter explains this. And specifically in dealing with prophecy, explains this unique, beautiful collaboration. He says this, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, get, get what he's saying here. Um, no prophecy, we can, we can expand this to no scripture, was ever produced by the will of man. In other words, no, people weren't sitting down and saying, ha, I got an idea. I'm going to write me some scripture. They're like, ah, this is, I'm gonna, this is what it's going to be. You know, that, that wasn't the way this works. It wasn't their decision. They spoke. What they were saying, this is what people need to hear. They were writing and, and they, were, they were speaking to people of their day with their needs. That's why so much of what we do here is explaining the context back then. Because that was of most importance to them. That men were speaking to other men, to other people. And as they did, as they spoke, they spoke from God as they were carried along. It's as if the words they were saying were the very words of God because they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Our statement of faith says this. The Bible's human authors, with their distinct personalities and styles, were inspired by God and carried along by the Holy Spirit to choose the exact words God intended to communicate to humankind. When they spoke, 
they thought it was their words. And what, what, what God was saying, oh, I like your words because I inspired your words. Now those are my words. It's this beautiful collaboration. And this is important. Because of this, because of God's words, we can be sure of the third point, And that is that it is truthful in all that it teaches. This is truthful in all that it teaches. Now this point is taken almost directly out of our statement of faith as well. Which says that scripture was without error in its original writings. And is completely truthful in all that it addresses. Now I have to point out that first line. Is, um, is, is sort of a, a little disclaimer, a disclaimer that without error in its original writings. Um, it's a little disclaimer. We, we actually don't have any of the original writings. If that makes you nervous, it's okay. We also don't have any of Shakespeare's original writings. Okay? So th- there's not many documents. There's, you know, um, there's not many documents that we have original writings from. You know, our Constitution, we only have a few of them, right? 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 I mean, so this is the thing. This is... This is saying that originally it was all good. But, okay, we've been, we've been transcribing these things for a long time. They've been, they've been making copies of copies. Now, we have some really, really old manuscripts, okay? This is a whole other seminar. I'd love, to, I'd love to walk you through the proof that we have of the transmission of Scripture. Oh, my goodness. So much great evidence for that, that, that what we have in our text is the very words. In fact, I've heard it been said that actually we have more confidence that, that what we have in this book is the words that were originally written more confidence than we do of Shakespeare's writings, okay? Shakespeare wrote 1,500 years after, 1,500 years after the last of these books. And yet, we can have more confidence that these words are the very words that were written than we can of Shakespeare. That is impressive for a book that is as old as it is. So... It is completely truthful in all that it says, though. This is, this is the real point. This is the thing that I think we need to, to deal with and grapple with. What it's saying is that we can be sure that, what the, what, that the Bible is completely truthful in everything that it addresses. Everything that it draws its attention to and says, this is what I'm focused on. This is a statement of, of an idea called inerrancy. That the, the Bible is without error. It's also in, or infallibility. It can't fail you. We'll get to that in a second. But um, this is a conviction of Proverbs 35, that every word of God proves true. Now, this is an important phrase. It proves true because at times it may not feel true. It may not. And it may take a while to prove true. But in the end... This is a conviction that it will be true. And once again, this is a whole other seminar. I'd love to walk you through evidence for the truth of Scripture because there's a lot of it. And this stuff keeps coming out. This is one of the instances of the, the further away we get from this, from the writing of Scripture, actually, the more historic evidence we find. That we're finding more and more of this all the time. In the late 90s, one of the, one of the really more important ones was the discovery that, that King David was a real person. I don't know if you know this, but all, they all said that there were, it was just a bunch of myths. They still, they're still saying that. They've been saying it for a long time, right? They said that David was just a myth. 
and that the whole Old Testament was kind of just made up. Well, they found this Tel Dan steel, okay, which uh, is a, uh, a stone tablet that mentions the house of David. And one scholar says it this way, at a single blow, the finding of this inscription brought an end to the debate and settled the question whether David was an actual historic person. Now, this sort of thing happens all the time. The Bible makes a ton of historic claims. I need to be honest with you, not all of them have been verified like this. But not one of them has been negated said not to be true. In fact, every single time we hear more and more coming that are proved true. Uh, just in September, I'm told, that um, a scientific paper was published that talked about uh, a city, a city that was, that was spontaneously erupted. They, they found a city and evidence of it that 3,600 years ago, this city spontaneously erupted. Had to do with a meteorite coming down and exploding midair is their theory of how this happened. Well, in the scientific paper itself, it says that, it actually says this, that, that this, would, this would be a lot like the eyewitness reports of the story of Sodom in our Bible. That that, would, that might actually be the thing that caused that, which is phenomenal. That even in a completely scientific report, we're finding this stuff. There's all sorts of examples like this, and we're learning this more and more every day. And no doubt, there's great reason to be confident that every word of God proves true. But this is where I, I want to just say some things as, as a, a former high school pastor who's seen way too many high school students leave and learn some things about this book and then decide to leave forever and even walk away from the church seen way too many go and they maybe it's a first year philosophy professor or something that that tells them that the bible has all sorts of errors in it and then they show them one and then they look at it and though huh why didn't my pastor tell me that did he not know or was he lying to me dang so this is where i'm not going to lie to you at all in fact, I want, to deal with, I want to deal with one of them. There's a bunch, like I said, this is a whole other seminar. There's a, there's a bunch of these, and I want you to know that you can ask questions about any of these. There are good answers. People have been trying to answer these for a long time. Here's one, and I think this is a more insidious one because it deals with Jesus himself. Jesus says this. He's comparing the kingdom of God to a, a mustard seed. Jesus says, it is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on the earth. If you, if you wanted to Google right now, the question, is the mustard seed the smallest seed on all the earth? You'd find, just like I did, that no, it is not. Mustard seed is not small. In fact, there's a lot smaller must, seeds. Mustard seed is not even close. Oops. Does that mean we throw it away? No one's shaking their head, no. No, you do not throw it away, right? Because, and this is why I wanted to start with the human and divine collaboration. This is why this is so important. What Jesus is doing here is speaking like a human. Because he is a human, right? This is the, this is the amazing thing. 
Jesus speaking like a human. Okay, let me give you an example. We do this all the time. All the time. Here's an example. If I were to say, we need to leave because the sun sets at 4.50 p.m., would you yell, false? Because in some way, it's false. You could also look on your phone right now and tell me that, yes, the sun sets tonight at 4.53 p.m. So I'm rounding here. I'm not being precise. My language is not precise in this statement. Okay? Sorry. I, I was wrong. But what about this, this phrase? The sun sets. Does the sun set? Am I being scientifically accurate here? No. But do you understand what I mean? Would it be strange for me to say, hey, we need to leave because the earth rotates the sun out of view at 450? You'd be like, what are you talking about, Josh? Right? Because that's what's happening. We know we live in a heliocentric universe, right? And we realize that it's not the sun that's moving and setting. It is actually the earth that is rotating. And so we realize that. We know that. And we allow for it because that's the way that humans speak. Sure enough, if we go back, you would find that this phrase, the mustard seed, that the Talmud has multiple examples of the mustard seed being referenced as the smallest measure, unit of measure. And so what, what is Jesus doing here? He's just referencing something that people know. He's pointing it out. He's pointing out for a reason. If he were teaching botany, we'd be like, wait a minute, hold on, time out. I'd love to hear Jesus teach on botany, by the way. That'd be really cool. Um, <laughs> however, he's not doing that. He's not doing that. He's talking about the kingdom. And what he's saying is the kingdom, it may start small, but it's going to grow. And I love this so much because it's not only true of external kingdom. We're going to see that that comes that is true, but it's also true internally. That the kingdom of God starts small in our lives. This little decision inside of us, but it grows outside of us. And this is what I want to tell you. We have to have a view of Scripture that can account for this. Because what I don't want, and I feel like we've sometimes taught to kids, or us even, is this kind of, this kind of hot air balloon view of Scripture where one prick in it, and then the whole thing deflates. And we just have to throw it away. But that's not the way it is. That's not the way we think about anything else in the world. These aren't, this isn't an error. And yet, we can deal with them. We can deal with them. We can talk about them because that's what we do. We need to be people who do that. So, here's the important point. When the Bible wants to teach us something, it is always truthful. When the Bible's trying to say something, it is always truthful. And we can count on that. The Bible cannot fail us is what the Isaiah is saying. He's kind of using this illustration of rain and snow coming down to, to do something. It has a reason. The reason that rain and snow comes down is to grow something. So shall my words be in verse 11. They go out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. But my words will accomplish that which I purpose them to and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent them. There was a reason that God has given us this book. I've already told you what it is. It points to Jesus, right? And so, fourth reason though, 
that the more you wrestle with it, the more it comes alive. The more that you do what we're doing right now is actually wrestling even with the hard things, the more it comes alive. And, and you wrestle, you wrestle with it. I was intentional with that word because that word wrestle is actually the word that, that God names his people. He names his people those who wrestle with God. That's what Israel means, by the way, is wrestles with God. That we are to be the people that wrestle with God, that wrestle with his words. And the more we do that, the more it comes alive. And I want to tell you, I, I think we do that um, not just by reading it. Because I could have said, the more you read it, the more it comes alive. And, and hopefully it does. But you can read it without wrestling. I mean, and, and let me be very clear. I want you to read it, okay? I want you to join us. You can go to efcc.org slash Bible 2022. And, uh, and you, can, you can follow along in our reading plan. We're going to be reading the New Testament together. Um, there's a bunch of us already started. And yes, it's the second already. You missed the whole day yesterday, but you can catch up. It was only four verses. Um, and so um, you can pick up one of these on your way out and join us in reading Scripture together. Um, it's going to be a good time. I want you to read it, but I want you to, to wrestle with it as well, okay? Um, the fact of the matter is we can... We can read it without paying attention to it. And this is what uh, Peter says. He says, you'll do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. That it is good for us to pay attention to this, not just notice it, not just to say, oh yeah, it's a good book. But as if we're walking blind in a dark place and this is our only light. What he's saying is pay attention to it like your life depends on it. problem is we can read it and know it, and I, unfortunately there's even people here who've read it many times, who know a lot about it, and it hasn't, it hasn't gotten in them. It hasn't impacted them. It hasn't come alive in them. I, I know that because I was one of them for a while. I grew up knowing this book, but it, it didn't come alive to me until later. It's like the story of a, of a man who was, who was locked in a prison. And this was the only book he was given. So this book became something he read time and time again. He ended up dying in that prison. And uh, on the prison walls, the old dungeon, so the story goes, they found, they found all sorts of inscriptions and all sorts of, of, of writings on his walls. He wrote things like 31,173 verses. He counted all the verses. 23,214 in the Old Testament. 7,959 in the New Testament. Wow. Oh, and then it said 789,649 words in total. Counted every word. In fact, he even, said, he even said, oh, the middle word is the word against. It is word 3,994,825. And it's in Psalm 59, 3. Now that is impressive that he knew that. But sadly, there was nothing written on the walls that suggested that these words of this had entered into his heart at all. He knew a bunch of facts about it, a bunch of random details but he had missed the very point of it. So it never came 
alive in him. And Emmanuel Faith, we're people of the book. We're going to study the book. We're going to preach about the book. We're going to teach about the book. But if it doesn't come alive, then it's just missing the point. And the point is, our final reason comes right out of this passage in Hebrews 4. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the divisions of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We often apply this phrase, word of God, to the scriptures. And we say that they do pierce us. And, and let me tell you, they do. I mean, and, and let me tell you that this, in a way, is living because just the same Holy Spirit that, that, that inspired it is in illuminating it to our hearts. And so, absolutely, it's alive. But I, I just want to point out something to you. When this phrase says, the Word of God is living and active, the phrase, Word of God, I hate to tell you, it's not directly applied to this book. It's actually, and the verse goes on, and no creature is hidden from his sight. Does the Bible ever talk about this as a, as a person? No. His sight is talking about the word of God. His sight is the very word of God. We call the, the logos in John 1, which is Jesus. That this is a reference to Jesus. And what did I say in the beginning? That this book... Is a single story with a trajectory that points to Jesus. Another way to say it is this. That its words, in its words, you might encounter the word. You might encounter the word, and if it comes alive in you, that's because it has pointed you to the very purpose to what it is made. The, the reason it was sent was to point you to Jesus and if it comes alive in you, it's because Jesus is alive in you. And the Gospel of John opens up with some beautiful words that intentionally hearken us back to Genesis, the beginning of the book. Okay, So the, Genesis, in page one of your book, you'll see the phrase, in the beginning, God. Right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in John 1, we see this. In the beginning was the word. This is an intentional reference. They want you to go back. John wants you to go and say, hey, wait a minute, I'm doing something here. Was the word, and the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not of anything made that was made. What, what he's saying is, hey, back to, back to Genesis, when God made everything, guess what? It was the word who was making everything. It was this logos who was making everything. And eventually, John would say, and the word, the logos, took on flesh, became one of us, made his dwelling among us. The word is Jesus. And what I'm saying is that this book, is, this book of words points us to the very word. These words were inspired by the word. Because of that, the words will not fail to point you back to that word. And when they do, the words will come alive in you precisely because in them you will encounter the word 
himself. It is in these words that we encounter the word. Now, the only question for you is, that I have is, will you trust the words of this book to accomplish what they were designed to do? To point you back to the one who became flesh, the word that became flesh in Jesus. And I think this is maybe the strongest reason that we can trust it, is this idea that the words point you to something beyond something more it points you to the word of god because what that means is that the these words change us and they've been changing people's lives ever since the beginning i could ask testimony after testimony in here about how these words have changed your life have changed your marriage have changed your relationships the the words in here have given you ways to live that are new and different. Oh, so many. But it started in the very beginning. I could tell you a story, a story about people who have sacrificed, given their lives for the content of this book. In fact, one of the most compelling arguments is how the the earliest eyewitnesses of these stories, the people who saw Jesus die, who saw Jesus rise again, they were the people who went all around the world and started telling people about the content of this book. I can tell you stories about how they died. In fact, the only apostle that we assume died of old age is the apostle John. All the other ones were killed in terrible ways. They were killed in awful deaths. I don't want to even go into them here. But I can tell you that, that James, the brother of John, he was killed by the sword. Peter was beheaded in Rome. Sorry, Paul was beheaded in Rome. Peter um, was crucified upside down because he didn't feel like he was worthy worthy to die like Jesus. James, son of Alphaeus, he was killed brutally while serving in Syria. Thomas, while serving in India. Simon the Zealot, he he refused to sacrifice to the sun god in Persia, so they killed him. On and on they go. Andrew was killed serving in modern-day Turkey. Bartholomew was killed in modern-day Armenia. I can tell you, each of these guys, they had an opportunity to say, no, I'm just kidding. That was a joke. In fact, most of them were killed in slow, painful deaths where they had many opportunities to recant. Now, that's a powerful statement of the truth of this. Don't get me wrong, but I think what is more powerful is how the words they said spread around the world. Because what people found is that, yeah, this is, a, this is something worth, maybe worth dying for. But it's a lot better to live for it. And when we live for it, when we live the purpose of what this is made for, the purpose that it's sent for is the purpose of pointing to Jesus when we live for that. Now that is how we find the good life. Because what all the people who were changed by those people's testimonies, what they found was this simple truth, that the good book will point you to the good shepherd who wants to show you a good life.
John 10, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. He says that the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And he says that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus is saying, I have come the day that you, that me, that we may have life and have it to the full. He wants you to live the good life and through the good shepherd. The good shepherd is the one that the good book points to. And that's how you and I will live a good life. I pray, I pray you will. I pray that 2022 is not just a year that we dip our toes of hope into, but instead I pray we can jump into it, not because we have hope of external things, but because we found hope right here. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you. Lord, we do ask. We do ask that you would work in us like that mustard seed. The, the small confession of faith that brought us here might work in us, continue to grow in us, to be a tree we can sit under, just like, the, just like your church, your kingdom has grown from that small group of followers, grown to millions and billions of people. Lord God, I ask that you would work in us through the power that is within the scriptures, the power of the place that the scriptures point, the power of the very word of God, by the power of Jesus, may you use this in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.